Hi everyone, I'm Kyle Bechet, and this is the AAF Exchange, a podcast from the American Action Forum, where experts provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic policy issues. Welcome, and thank you for tuning in. Congress passed the Affordable Care Act over a decade ago, and yet even though Republicans failed to repeal it, the law is still a point of contention, even on the left. My name is Andrew Evans, and I'm your host for today's podcast. Joining us to discuss the latest developments in the ACA is Christopher Holt, Director of Healthcare Policy at the American Action Forum. Chris, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. Chris, President Biden's American Rescue Plan makes some substantial changes to the ACA, and I want to talk to you about those changes that are in the legislation that's currently winding its way through Congress. But I first want to talk to you about the broader narrative around the law. First of all, just looking broadly, what is President Biden claiming about the status of the law right now? Well, Pre- President Biden and I, I think Democrats broadly, um, certainly certainly activists who've been supportive of the law, have for for quite a while um, had this this narrative that they that they were presenting that the um, that the law has been just devastated by. Um, four years of, of not just mismanagement, but intentional sabotage by the Trump administration. And, and that, you know, as a result, um, the gains that were made under President Obama have been lost and um, and we need this sort of revitalization of the ACA. That, that's sort of the story that I think maybe you're not hearing as much right at this moment, but that was kind of the story in, during the campaign um, and sort of early on as uh, as Biden was coming into office. So practically, what are they doing to shore up the law? What steps are they taking? Right. So, so you know, there's a, there's a few things through executive action. Um, you know, President Biden pretty early on started reversing some of the the Trump administration's um, actions. Now, th- those reversals will will take a while. You know, they're they're just beginning that process. But through rulemaking, they'll um, likely look to roll back some of the um, loosening of of the rules around um, insurance plans, what what constitutes acceptable coverage. So, so the um, the thing that that supporters of the law have been particularly upset about was the uh, allowance for short term limited duration plans, which don't have as robust a benefit. Like they're outside of the ACA's um, mandates for for what needs to be covered. And and so um, that's that's one sort of area that gets pointed to a lot that they're working to roll back. I think they're they're looking at trying to claw back. And this is a little bit outside the ACA, but part of the part of the Medicaid expansion a little bit. They're they're looking to claw back some of the um, work requirements in Medicaid and things that the that the Trump administration put in. Um, so, so so there's a, a host of sort of executive actions looking to roll back a lot of what um, sort of really just loosening of, of regulation around the ACA that the Trump administration undertook. And that's possible because most of what the Trump administration did uh, around the ACA, you know, was executive action. It wasn't legislative in nature. And, and so it's relatively easy for the Biden administration to start that process of rolling it back. As part of the reconciliation bill, you know, they've inserted some pieces of, I think, Biden's, you know, larger agenda for building on the ACA, if you will, of expanding the ACA. And so um, they're making the subsidies more generous than they have been in the past. Um, they're, they're allowing the subsidies to you know, go. Currently, under current law, you can't receive a subsidy if you make more than 400% of the federal poverty level. They're, they're pulling that back. So they've got those. Those are sort of two key changes. Um, yeah, definitely those are temporary. 
But I definitely want to talk talk more about those. Um, but thinking about this narrative that that Biden has uh, right now, uh, is he right? What do the numbers tell us? So, so I don't think he is. Um, and you can make an argument, certainly, that the Trump administration did seek to undermine the the ACA. I, I don't know that that's fair, but you, but you can make that argument. Um, certainly earlier in the administration. Uh, but you can't really make the argument that they were successful, right? If that if that was their goal, then I, then I think you sort of have to say that they didn't they didn't succeed at it. Um, I, I think you know the reality is they weren't actually trying to dismantle the law. They they were simply trying to make it a little bit more um, you know market allow allow more insurers in, allow more kinds of plans, give more choice. Um, and and so you know when you look at the enrollment, you look at premiums, all of these things have actually stabilized in the last couple of years. Uh, and so, you know, we had our last really big spike in insurance premiums in 2018, um, which is really the only year of, of insurance premium spikes that you can really put on the Trump administration, right? They, 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 had very, they had nothing to do with premiums in 2017, which was the second largest spike. Um, and, and so, um, you know, you know, so since then, you've seen premiums stabilize. Enrollment has been pretty steady. It might have actually gone up this year. You know, it's still kind of pulling some of those numbers together. Um, so so, you know, there's just not a lot of evidence that the law has been um, has been damaged. I think you'd have to make the argument you have to make is that somehow enrollment would have been higher and premiums would have been lower in the absence of of Trump administration actions. But until the Trump administration came in, we'd seen the exact opposite of that. So that's fascinating. You know, the, the rallying cry of so many has been that the ACA is the law of the land and the stability of the marketplace, as you were just outlining, seems to suggest that there has been entrenchment in society of this law. Um, so you, you were mentioning some changes. Um, walk us through uh, some of the changes that the American Rescue Plan makes to the ACA. Um, let's start with the insurance subsidies. Yeah, so. So the way that the uh, Affordable Care Act is set up is that there's a there's a tier of subsidy levels, and so um, if you if you make a particular percent of the federal poverty level, so let let's say that you're at you know 350 percent of, of of poverty, then then you pay a set percentage of your income towards your premium, and any cost of that premium above above that percentage is is subsidized now. That's based on sort of a benchmark plan, the second lowest cost silver plan, so kind of a medium plan in your rating area. Um, and so whatever subsidy it would require for you for that premium to be you know, less than the prescribed amount of your, of your income, then, then you get a subsidy you know, sufficient to that. You don't have to buy that plan. You can buy a more expensive plan. You can buy a less expensive plan. The subsidy amount stays the same, right? It becomes a dollar figure. It's just calculated on that. Um, and and so what the and as you go down the income ladder, those the, that percent of income gets lower and lower until you don't really have to pay anything. Um, additionally, for those at 250 percent of FPL or below, um, there's there's additional cost sharing assistance that insurers are required to to give you. So as you go down the income ladder, insurers have to cover more and more of your normal your copays, any sort of co-insurance. Um, so that if you're, you know, at 150% of FPL, you're really not paying anything for that for that benefit, or very little. So is the plan is bumping up these subsidies? Is that yeah, what the, so the would do? Two, 
there's really two parts to it. Uh, one is to say, you know, we're going to lower quite dramatically the, those percentages. So I think off the top of my head that it's below, basically below 200% of FPL. Um, you wouldn't pay anything. Like you'd have no, you'd have no um, part of your premium that you'd have to, have to pay. Um, at the upper end, it would be capped at 8.5% of your income. So, so that's that's below. I think this year it's it's 9.67, but that might not be exactly right. But it's indexed for inflation, um, and so so that'd be a, a relatively substantial job drop. That's the that's the first thing. So you're going to spend more subsidizing people with ACA coverage. Um, the second piece is that currently, like I mentioned, you've got this cap at 400% of FPL. They're going to lift that. So they're going to say your total income doesn't matter. If, if your premium costs more than 8.5% of your income, no matter how much money you make, then you get a subsidy. Um, now, in reality, you know, I think it, it, there's sort of the actual implications of these, and CBO has looked at, at this uh, a little bit, other people are starting to, is interesting. Uh, they don't actually cover that many more people. With, with these with these policies and these policies would be in place for two years as of right now because of the rules and reconciliation um so it'd just be for this year and next year uh but you you don't really expand coverage that much really you just spend a lot more money on people who are already buying ACA coverage uh and and then I think on the on the second piece it's a little bit weird because another thing that they're trying to do is get states to expand Medicaid which would bump um, you know, would bump people who are above 100% of FPL in a non-expansion state, you know, but below 150% out of the ACA and into Medicaid. Um, and so you kind of got these dual purposes where they seem to be trying to push lower income people into Medicaid while they're giving more subsidies uh, to more sort of upper income households. So do these, do these changes make sense in your eyes? What do you see as the drawbacks? Well, I mean, exactly that. I think it, you know they're they're presented as an effort to expand coverage, uh, and we don't see a lot of evidence that they'll have a dramatic impact on expanding coverage. They they really just seem to increase the amount of federal assistance going to people who are already buying ACA coverage. You know, particularly in the case of of lifting the the income cap, as as sort of weird as that is for a sense, in a sense, for progressives to be sort of pushing for more benefits for um, you know, you know, for upper income individuals, uh, it's likely that it won't have much of an impact because most people above 400% of FPL are going to either be getting employer-sponsored insurance anyway, so they're not eligible for ACA coverage, or it's unlikely that their premiums will be high enough to hit that 8.5%. So where you might see it is maybe people between 400 and 500% living in New York City where costs are higher, you know, they might, you know, you might see... But I, I think it'll be a relatively narrow population that actually benefits from the change. It's just optically it looks weird. Um, and, and, you know, I, not to change topics too much, but to pair that with another piece of the reconciliation bill, which is the COBRA subsidy, uh, that's also another thing that isn't likely to increase coverage all that much. And it's just giving a lot of money in subsidies to, to people who are probably a little higher up the income ladder. That's helpful. That's interesting. So um, I think you might have just answered this question, but I want to ask it anyway. Um, let me play devil's advocate for a moment about the uh, the cap and lifting the cap on subsidies. Uh, the old structure um, had a number of cliffs built into it. 
uh, policy cliffs, and most obviously the high end where you went from 8.5% to nothing, um, or 9 point whatever to nothing. Um, such that if you make $1 over 400% of the poverty level, then all of a sudden you have to pay a lot more for your insurance. Um, this change eliminates the cliff. You said it may not apply to many people at all, um, but isn't, isn't it a good thing to eliminate the cliff in certain circumstances? Um, so, you know, the, the question of cliffs in, in federal policy in general is an interesting one. Like you, you don't want to have disincentives to, you know, higher income. Um, this is actually something that Speaker Ryan tried to, to get at during when he was looking at repeal and replace, right? His, his alternative uh, bill had some things aimed at trying to mitigate cliffs in any sort of federal subsidy. Um, so it's not inherently a bad thing to go after that. Uh, the the reality is more that, you know, I think like the, the truth is that a lot of people between 350% and 400% of FPL even now aren't actually qualifying for subsidies because, not not because their income is too high, but because their the cost of their premium isn't actually high enough to trigger the subsidy. So uh, as far as a percent of their income. So I don't know that the cliff is is as dramatic in this particular instance as in some places where you might see it with like, you know, earned income, you know, tax credit or something like that. That's helpful. Thanks for that. Let's turn to Medicaid. You mentioned Medicaid a couple times, um, but let's focus specifically on it. What changes does this law make? Well, so so there's a couple things that um, that we're speaking about the reconciliation bill um, that the reconciliation bill would do in Medicaid. Uh, the sort of the big one is an effort to uh, expand um, Medicaid eligibility, and and so going back to the ACA, you know, uh, the ACA initially required all states to expand eligibility for Medicaid to 135, 136 percent. Actually, I think it might have it sort of was like between 136 and 138 percent of, of poverty. Uh, the Supreme Court in the case challenging the law's constitutionality actually did strike that down. It said you can't require states to do this as a condition of continuing to receive you know, Medicaid dollars. And so um, it became optional. And, and so what you ended up having largely in the initial years was states with sort of blue leadership um, expanding Medicaid and states with more conservative governments uh, or, or electorates. Uh, not expanding Medicaid. Uh, and so that that created a couple of, of dynamics. So for one, um, the way the law worked is that if, if your state wasn't expanding, then above 100% of FPL, you actually could get subsidies. So so you're all, you're, you know, if you're at 110% of FPL, you're basically getting a fully subsidized ACA plan. It actually worked out for you maybe to have your state not expand Medicaid. Um, but below 100%, percent of FPL, if you were below the poverty level, not all states covered all people up to 100 percent of FPL. And so there's this there's this gap. Um, and so that continues to this day. There's a couple of million people who are in states that didn't expand, um, who are there are not eligible for Medicaid and are below 100 percent and can't get uh, can't can't get the subsidy dollars this is largely childless adults. And so um, so that's been a concern, particularly of advocates um, for the ACA and for, for sort of more robust federal programs for a long time. Um, this law is aiming to in, encourage the remaining states. I think it's about 14, uh, but don't quote me on that. But it's about 14 um, states that that haven't expanded Medicaid 
should do so by giving them an extra 5% on their federal match. So that, you know, the federal government pays a percentage of the Medicaid costs for a state that that match, that FMAP um, varies based on the circumstances of the state. So it goes from like roughly 55% to I think West Virginia is around 83% of, of costs. Um, and so what they're, what they're basically saying is if you expand your your Medicaid program in, in keeping with the ACA, we will, we will give you an extra 5% match for five years on the rest of your existing Medicaid population. And then keep in mind for that expansion population, the federal government's already paying 90%. So, so they're trying to incentivize states to expand. So that's, that's sort of one thing. Uh, then there's a number of um, smaller changes around uh, maternal mortality, you know, are, are allowing maternal coverage um, for a year instead of 60 days. Uh, there's changes around chip coverage also um, for for maternal care uh, and children's health insurance program. Children's health insurance program. Um, so just postpartum care currently lasts about 60 days. Uh, a little bit fungible there, but roughly 60 days. They would expand it to to a year. Um, and to pay for some of the changes that they're making in the Medicaid program, they they're changing some rebate requirements for drug manufacturers. Uh, so currently, drug manufacturers have to pay rebates to state Medicaid programs on the drugs that they that they um, sell to the state Medicaid programs, and it is pot. And one of those rebates is an inflation penalty, so that if the drug's price has increased faster than inflation, they have these compounding penalties. Um, and actually, as part of the ACA, I think we they implemented a cap on that because what was happening is those penalties were accruing such that every time a state Medicaid program, you know, prescribed a drug, the the manufacturer in some some of these cases would owe a larger rebate to the state than the state paid for the drug. So in effect, the drug manufacturer had to pay the state to use their drug. Uh, but one of the things they're doing in this is lifting that cap so that so we could have that happen again. Um, it's been delayed in the Senate version for a year in the house version it would have kicked in sooner but there's an extra year delay in this in the senate version uh, so there's some of the medicaid changes um in general i think the biden administration you know wants to push medicaid expansion wants to roll back some of the flexibility that states were given under the trump administration that's helpful so looking broadly at, at all of these changes what inferences do you think we can draw about the direction the biden administration is taking on health policy I think the Biden administration is going roughly where we expected, which is, you know, building on building on the ACA, uh, trying to make the ACA um, cover more people, to be more generous, um, and and in doing those things, they're they're seeking to expand the role of the federal government in providing health care um, to Americans. And so, you know, the, the big piece of the Biden health policy agenda that isn't in reconciliation and probably can't be, um, is, is the public option, right? They, they want to create this public option. Um, but I, I think all of these things just are, are building towards a more robust federal role in providing insurance and, and in covering the cost of insurance for, um, for citizens. Um, and similarly, I mean, the, the COBRA subsidies in the law, right, the short term transitional insurance you, you can sign up for when you lose your job, um, those, those COBRA subsidies, which would be you know something we've done maybe once before in a similar sort of situation. Uh, but, the, but, but these in the Senate bill, they would be 100 percent of the premium. So, again, it's just the federal government sort of stepping in and taking a, 
a larger role in sort of controlling all of that. So let's turn to the, what the future might hold. Let's look first to, first to the immediate future. You wrote in your weekly checkup, which I encourage all of the listeners to subscribe to. Uh, Chris has a weekly column that discusses the healthcare policy news of the week, uh, really always on point. Uh, so let me encourage you to sign up. Um, but you wrote a couple of weeks ago about Javier Becerra, President Biden's HHS, Health and Human Services Secretary nominee. He is currently awaiting a vote by the full Senate. You, you know, were following very closely the confirmation hearings and, and all of the news around that. So what conclusions did you take away from that process? Well, so I think it was I think the narrative was interesting, right? So so I think as particularly as sort of health policy cover reporters sort of covering that, you know, the story is sort of Biden ran as moderate Joe, right, as uh, a relatively mainstream option when it came to like health policy. He wasn't Bernie Sanders. He wasn't Elizabeth Warren. He didn't endorse Medicare for all. Like very explicitly didn't endorse it. Um, Becerra, on the other hand, is a um, you know died in the wool progressive, especially on health policy. He has a long record on health policy uh, as a member of the as a member of the House on Ways and Means, and then also as Attorney General of California, uh, using using that office to go after health companies and to try to defend the ACA from suit, lawsuits and such. Um, and and so he you know he's been an advocate for single payer health care. Um, he's been very aggressive in his approach to drug companies. Um, you know, very very supportive of of limiting um, prices. Uh, there's just a you know, just a couple of news articles. Uh, Elizabeth Warren had some written questions for him about margin rights, where the government can just sort of come in and, and take a patent from a company and and give it to someone else to make the drug for cheaper or or make the drug themselves. And you know, he he seems open to the idea that that existing law would allow the government to do that. So in general, I think Becerra is is very much on the sort of progressive left. And so the story coming out of the hearing was. Wow, you know, Becerra is willing to moderate himself. He he's not going to advocate for you know really aggressive progressive policies. He seems very happy to limit himself to the Biden agenda. Uh, I, I think you know one of my takeaways was why is Becerra so comfortable with the Biden agenda? And at the end of the day, I I think the idea that Biden is a moderate on healthcare is is kind of it's really just in comparison to the most extreme elements of the of the Democratic Party, Biden's not that moderate, you know, you know, and and I and so I think the takeaway is Becerra is comfortable with where Biden is on health care because Biden, Biden's pretty progressive on health care. Mm. Are there specific policies that you think that they'll pursue like a public option? So, you know, the public option, absolutely. They want to implement one. That was a campaign promise. Um, so I'm sure they will pursue that. I don't think there's a legislative path for it, uh, and and so ultimately, I don't I don't think they'll put a ton of time into it. Um, I I think you know you'll see the House maybe vote on something at some point, uh, and and that's something that you know they'll tee up maybe for the midterms. You know we we can't do this with the current you know construction of the Senate, but you know, um, I think you know more likely you're you're going to see another sort of reconciliation bill at some point where they will seek to make some of the other ACA changes, particularly the, the more generous subsidies and, and, and that um, permanent. Uh, so, so in order to do that in reconciliation, they'll have to pay for that. And that's where a lot of sort of progressive policy ideas around drug prices could come in. 
because a lot a lot of things that could be done to limit drug pricing very well might um, fly under reconciliation. You know, the parliamentarian might allow, and they can produce savings. So you could see them pursuing sort of a more progressive drug policy as part of paying for a permanent expansion of the enhanced subsidies in the ACA. What about things like further subsidies for for the Affordable Care Act? Um, you know, making them even more generous. Uh, is that you think that that would be in the cards as well? Um, I mean, I think for the moment, the the focus will turn to simply making the current changes permanent. You know, I mean, they they could if they really wanted them to be more generous, um, they could have done that in this as well. Um, so so I, I think the, the the focus would be primarily just trying to make permanent some of the changes that they're making to the ACA. I'd like to close by thinking about the status of the ACA as a whole. So stepping back, you know, how should we think about this? I'm struck by the fact that even a Democratic administration is trying to change this law. Um, that seems to suggest that it isn't a stable law. Um, it's not really the law of the land in a way that, you know, Social Security is, perhaps. Was it ever really meant to be the law of the land, a stable fixture? Or should we think about it as as simply a placeholder for a different policy? So um, we can go very philosophical here, whether any any law is intended to be um, the permanent stable law of the land. Um, look, I, I think, and, and I'll lose my invitation to all the conservative health policy clubs, but I think it's perfectly accurate to say that the ACA is the law of the land. It's here to stay. Um, that, that's been settled. But nothing is sort of unchanging in, in federal policy. And so Medicare is clearly here to stay. It's the law of the land. We make changes to Medicare all the time. Um, and so I understand thematically, you know, the, the idea that maybe the ACA, you know, there, there's there's one way of looking at it where the ACA was intended to sort of dry, almost drive up health care. Like there's a sort of a conspiracy theory, right, uh, that may have some validity that, you know, the ACA was going to expand coverage but not do anything to address costs and create this scenario where costs spiraled out of control. And so we had to move to single payer. And certainly I think the ACA moved us forward on a road towards single payer and and can act as a stepping stone to people who want to move closer to single payer. Um, you know, but but I I don't think, you know, I, I think the reality is the ACA was the from the perspective of the law's sponsors from the Obama administration, it was the best thing they could put together and get done. Um, and so it was less about, yeah, I mean, maybe there was a hope to come back to some of these things, certainly on the cost side. Um, but but I, I don't think it was as like it certainly wasn't intended to fail, even though that's sort of a narrative that maybe conservatives conservatives told. Um, does it does it serve as a stepping stone? Yes. Um, is it relatively stable at this point? Yes, I, I think it is relatively stable. Um, does that mean that it checked every box that progressives wanted either in 2010 or certainly in 2021? No. And and so and, and conservatives, I think, would still like to see. It may be the law of the land. That doesn't mean you saw the Trump administration trying to add market competition, trying to add options, trying to add choice. Um, and so, you know, I think we'll continue to make you know, changes to have policy battles around it. Um, people will continue to push for more expansive coverage. Um, people will continue to push to roll back aspects of it. Um, but but the, the law, you know, will be here with us. Like this is this is the framework in which we will debate health policy going forward. I think you said nothing will ever stay the same. So mm -hmm. we'll have to have you on again at some point in the next 
the next several months to talk about what new things have changed. Um, Chris, I'm so glad that you came on to talk to us about uh, all of these changes that are going on right now with the Affordable Care Act. Um, let me close with a question about your beloved Portland Trailblazers. They're riding pretty hot right now. How are you feeling? Well, they were riding really hot, and you know, then we had the the losing streak. Uh, but you know, I'm feeling pretty good, you know, about uh, about where they are. Um, all things considered, you know, I think this is a team that like shouldn't be in the playoff hunt right now, having lost their second and third best players for you know a huge chunk of the first half of the season. Uh, and so it's really entirely Damian Lillard and, um, you know, they're, they're sitting in fifth place in the Western conference and, you know, we get past the all-star break and, and maybe McCollum comes back. Maybe, maybe Nurkic comes back. If we, if we get, uh, you know, get rolling, you know, I, I, I feel good about their potential to, you know, maybe even squeak into that fourth seed. Right. And then maybe they'll end up in the seventh, but maybe squeak into that fourth seed. If they can get in the fourth seed, maybe we can get out of the first round. We'll see. Very good. Well, we'll have to have you back on and talk about that as well. Uh, Chris, thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. Tune back in for our next episode, where our experts will provide clear, data-driven insights into today's economic and domestic issues. I'd also encourage you to check out any of the links in our show notes, and also follow us on social media to learn more about AAF. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, or Google Play.